Welcome, listeners. I'm Charlie Gibson, along with my daughter, Kate, my co-host, and we welcome you to The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie. Although, you know, I thought of it occasionally, Kate, as the way the military stamps things. They always sort of do it backwards. So I welcome you to the case, comma, book, comma, the, uh-huh. Which is putting it in military. <laughs> You're now, shaking married, your head. I'm married because I, I, I'm married to a nerd, so I think of that as Yoda speak. I'm Gibson, comma Kate, comma I am. I don't know. I well, you know Gibson, I am. I, that's that's a Yoda thing in my house anyway. My brother thought that the the ultimate way of the military marking things was balls, comma pong, comma ping. <laughs> For some reason, they do it backwards. But this is all off the subject. <laughs> we have a book this week that, well, again, I don't know what. This book can be read, I think, in many levels. Dave Eggers is the author. Sean Harris is the illustrator. And the book is wonderful. It's a fable. Yeah, I know. It sort of defies description. I feel the same way about it. The book is called The Eyes and the Impossible. And I would describe it as an anthropomorphic book, except for it's not what you think of as typically anthropomorphic. You know, the animals aren't wearing clothes. They aren't visiting each other's houses. It's very much animals grounded in the animal world. The main character is a dog named Johannes. He's free and he lives in this fictional park with raccoons and squirrels and bison and they have adventures. And that sounds sort of banal and insipid. It is not. It is beautiful and lyrical and lovely. And it left me with all sorts of good and touching feelings. I loved this book. It was one of those books where We've had a few of these where I've gotten a hold of a book or my father has gotten a hold of a book and I've been reading, 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 and I've realized it's two o'clock in the morning and I can't call him to tell him how much I love the book. So I text him a picture of the cover of the book and I go, read this, read this, read this, read this, read this. This was one of those books. I loved this book. I'm really excited to recommend it to our listeners. Get a hold of this book and read it and read it to your kids. Yes, it will appeal to all audiences. I think it could be read by young adults and they would love it. And by, as they might say, suitable for ages 10 to 90 <laughs> and even beyond. It draws you in. There are humans in the book. They are building a museum in the park. They are displaying artwork on easels that fascinate Johans. How he relates to humans is interesting. It's a wonderful book written, I think, on many different levels. Mm-hmm. Dave will tell you basically it's a fable. But I think it's a lot more than that. And I think it is a testament to the intricacies of his writing, which may appear simple, but which are anything but his prose, his words are anything but. But I don't know how to describe it. And that's the problem. (laughs) You just have to take our word for it. It also is enhanced. This is going to sound even stranger. It's enhanced by illustrations from a gentleman named Sean Harris. They find these classic paintings by Dutch masters and then they paint Johannes in there, the dog. I know that sounds strange, but it's also really magical and it contributes to the magical feeling of this book. I just, from start to finish, I enjoyed the ride of this book and I couldn't wait to talk to Dave about all of the thought processes behind it, how he came up with the individual voices of the animals, where he saw this book ending up. It's just, it's a a great read. Yeah, I, I like your word magical. I hadn't thought of it in conjunction with the book, but it is in a way that, and I don't mean in terms of supernatural magic. Mm-hmm. I just mean it's, it is magic in the prose that draws you into the life of this fictional park where, and this is an important part of it, the animals want to maintain equilibrium. Now, he never gives you a full definition of what equilibrium is, but basically it is sort of to maintain a state of nature in the park. 
And that is Johann's main purpose, I guess, is to maintain that state of equilibrium. And you can kind of define equilibrium any way you want. We asked Dave about it and he gives an interesting answer. But as I say, it's just <laughs> fable, <laughs> many different layers to the book. You can take it any way you want. And I'm not doing a great job of saying why I loved it so much, but I loved it so much. It's so different from a heartbreaking work of staggering genius that it shows Dave's incredible range. I, it's captivating. We're not doing as good a job, I guess, of describing it as Dave Eggers <laughs> himself does. We talked to Dave and... We brought later to Sean Harris, who is the illustrator and who does a wonderful job of enhancing the book, I think. So once again, the name of the book is... The Eyes and the Impossible. Here's our conversation with Dave Eggers and Sean Harris. Dave Eggers, it is a great pleasure, great pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And both Kate and I read this book. I've read it a couple of times now, The Eyes and the impossible. Sort of a genre defier. I mean, if you had to define it, or do you not like to pigeonhole it in terms of where you would put this book in terms of genre? You know, I am really genre resistant and age group resistant. I think that we have done, we might have gone too far in American publishing of like categorizing books. I love the idea of an all ages book. You know, the books that you could read as a family, the books that you could read as an adult and not feel shame about, Shel Silverstein sorts of books or E.B. White or Katie Camillo, you know, books that I think there's a sort of a clarity, a moral clarity to books that are supposedly maybe chapter books for kids, but sort of have universal themes and are very pleasurable to read as adults. I was thinking of something my wife often says about analyzing an onion. As you go deeper and deeper into the mm. onion, each layer is different and each layer has a different flavor. Yeah. Or sometimes an onion is just an onion. <laughs> and I wonder if you see this book succeeding or operating at many different levels, do you? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that's deeply personal in this to me. So there's a lot of me in there, a lot of sort of the ways I see, especially the outdoor world, but, the, you know, this San Francisco, where I've been for the last 30 years, there's, I think, a sort of a universal spirituality that I feel like we have in common with animals. We have, weirdly enough, we don't have a dog. We have two cats. <laughs> and so I've never had a dog, but I've always had cats. And I really, just observing them, they experience great grief. They, I think, exult in their abilities. And I think that they live to see. And so I wanted Johannes to embody all of those things the same way that I think, you know, most of us do as humans. You know, we can exult in beauty, exult in our physicality in almost a Whitman-esque <laughs> kind of way. And so, you know, we're reissuing Leaves of Grass in the fall. And so that kind of, I rediscovered Leaves of Grass when I was finishing that this and thinking that there's a little bit of Whitman and Johannes mm. in just that ability to just deeply feel and be boundingly joyful about, you know, the physical world around them and their ability to sort of live within it and experience it, the, the gratitude 
to sort of have that around. I'm used to, you know, starting movies with any representation, real life people or places is purely coincidental. In the flyleaf on this one, you do that sort of legalese, but you say that it's very important to know that these are animals that are grounded in the animal kingdom, not necessarily your classic anthropomorphic yeah. Winnie the Pooh, Wind in the Willows, Curvat. Why is that so important to call out as readers start this journey? I think that I didn't want this to be, you know, Animal Farm 2 and everyone thinking this was a thinly veiled allegory for capitalism or socialism or the American incarceration system or anything like that. <laughs> I, I, I feel like in my age, I've had a lot of misinterpreted books or temporarily misinterpreted. And once somebody says, oh, this is all about this political system, and then you can't get anyone to sort of <laughs> throw them off that scent. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, let's just try to obviate that at the beginning and sort of say, let's let this exist within the confines of this park of these animals and not have everyone trying to read a one-to-one -one ratio into it. Maybe an onion really is an onion. I think an onion is very apt. You know, it's a natural thing. I'm always looking for sort of natural corollaries like that. And going back to what we have among us, all the beauty that we have among us, as opposed to sort of comparing everything to sort of mathematical puzzlings. This takes place in a park where there are many animals and humans are there building a museum and generally moving around the park. But Johans says the park has an equilibrium, as all natural places do. And the bison, there are three bison in the park, watch it and protect it. They are the keepers of the equilibrium. What is the equilibrium in your mind? Well, you know, there's a, in San Francisco, there's a park called Golden Gate Park. Mm -hmm. No offense to Central Park or any other urban park. It is the best urban park in the civilized world, in the known world. It's vastly bigger than Central Park and much wilder. So I spent a lot of time there over the last 30 years. People here recognize aspects of Golden Gate Park. And what's always been key and the sort of the designer of the park, a guy named John McLaren, was committed to not over-civilizing this park and not over-stuffing it with streets, with sidewalks, with carousels. All of these things exist here, but the important thing was to maintain or allow enough wild space and not to over manicure it. Once you decide that you're going to ground your voices almost exclusively in the animal kingdom, how did you go about deciding on Johannes's voice? Because it's a very distinct voice. And I'm also interested in, were there ever days where you sat down to write his voice and say, no, this isn't working. I just don't have it. I just don't have that lyricism in my head today. Well, I started with by interviewing a number of dogs. And, <laughs> and just, I always do my research. <laughs> And as a journalist, I feel like I have to get into you know, that community and get to know their dreams and voices and creating an amalgam <laughs> of those voices. No, you know, back in 2002, I did a story called After I Was Thrown in the River and Before I Drowned. And it was for Nick Hornby's collection called Speaking with the Angel, which was mm. a benefit book to raise money for his kids' school in London called Treehouse, a school for autistic kids. And I don't know where it came from. I wrote a story sort of from the same point of view of a dog, in this case, named Stephen. And it was really the most fun, unhinged, free and liberating kind of writing I'd ever done. And I think it was the first short story that I ever published. And I'd always wanted to get back to that voice because it was so liberating. 
And so Johannes is a close cousin to Stephen. And the writing comes more fluidly than anything else I've ever done. This is sort of the most natural voice I, I've ever written. Um, I don't know what that says about me. I'm a 53-year-old man writing from the point of view of a dog, and uh, and somehow that feels the, feels the most natural and freeing. So um, I... Uh, I swear I am a responsible member of society. <laughs> I can be trusted with, uh, with heavy machinery and uh, taxes. One of the things I loved was Johan's concepts of measurement. He says at one point, I was running just below the speed of sound. <laughs> at other times, he is running at the speed of light and says, have you ever seen light move? Have you ever seen the speed of light? He at one point estimates that there were 12 and a half million people in the park and that the bisons had been in the park for 600 years and that there are more than a billion cities. Well, that, that <laughs> I think we know that dogs are not generally good at math. That part is factual. I wanted to get that right. As opposed to your cats, by the way, who are doing long division and have pie memorized. Yeah, the cats actually do do, they help with our taxes. So that we got through that <laughs> in April. And they were very, they're very uh, persnickety. They do it old school, you know, with the little visor and the, oh, yeah. you know, the little old calculator. I wanted <laughs> Johannes to be so in love with his speed because I do think that dogs and animals that are fast. I think that you see it in them, that playfulness. I just sort of wanted to go with that a little further and just have it be a recurring theme. But he's so exuberant, I think, that everything is the hugest number that could possibly be. You know, I wrote this on a boat. So my office is a boat on the bay. So I, during COVID, I, I got a little sailboat to work on because we, we had to get internet at home and I can't work near the internet. <laughs> so I got a little sailboat. It sits on the bay in a, in a, in a slip surrounded by some houseboats and a lot of sailboats and fishing boats. And I'm surrounded by seals and sea lions and cormorants and pelicans and seagulls. But this, the seals and sea lions are sort of, you know, dogs of the sea. And they really, they act so much like dogs and they're so goofy and playful. And it was very good sort of last minute research to just confirm that these are animals fully aware uh, that they've got it pretty good. They got <laughs> nothing to do. They have no duties. They have no jobs, no responsibilities. They live to play and they love their speed and they love their freedom. And so, and they too are unlikely to be good at math. And so it all confirmed <laughs> all of my assumptions and helped me finish the book. There might well have been ducks around you as well. And you have a thing about ducks. Yeah. You call them morons. What did ducks ever do to you? It's not just me. Come on. <laughs> I'm just saying what we all know and feel. That's don't get on me for just saying what we all have in our hearts, which are the ducks are not to be trusted. Now I have no problem with them, but I just, am not going to go to them when I'm in need. They're not to be depended upon. And if they just want to do their thing, that's fine. But I think we have to stop pretending yeah. that they're going to be there for you in a pinch. As Katie just said, what did ducks ever do to you? <laughs> <laughs> it was funny that, you know, my, editor, we debated 
So I have an editor named Taylor Norman, who was a brilliant editor on this. And we did debate early on because she's got a great sense of humor. And she said, are you really not going to redeem the ducks? Because (laughs) (laughs) the way to do it is that, you know, they're unreliable the whole time and all the other animals roll their eyes at the ducks. But at some point they have to be redeemed and they come through. And I thought, well, that that's just the easy way out. (laughs) When is the redemption? And wouldn't it be much more satisfying if they're not redeemed? And you think, oh, that's right. There are some creatures on earth that just are not going to be there when the chips are down. wanted to ask you in the acknowledgements, you're just talking about your editing process. You thank the Young Editors Project for their help and you thank some students specifically. What was that process? Were they your test readers? How did that work? Yeah, we have this thing called the Young Editors Project. We started it maybe four years ago now. And the idea is to like teachers will write to us, students, parents, saying that they have young people that are interested in the publishing process. And we try to sort of open that up to them and show them manuscripts in progress. And they might see it two, three years before it comes out. Hmm. And they just see it in manuscript form, just the typed pages. And they say, here's what I loved about it. Here's where... And they're very gentle editors. They're not, <laughs> not you know, these are not kids with red pens slashing. And they're really... They are sort of test readers. They're very enthusiastic and more so than they're being like, you know, harsh editors. We're collapsing that space between reader and publisher to sort of let them in on it. And then for all of these books where they participate, they get their name in the final book, which I think a fun thing when you're eight or nine or 10 years old to have your your name in a finished book. And it's one of the things that we've been doing for years through 826 Valencia and all of the centers that mm-hmm. are affiliated is just to try to get the kids a peek behind the curtain and make that process and the world of publishing available to them. Use the word fable about the book. Of course, the most famous fabulist is Aesop. And at the end of every fable, there is a lesson. And the, the lesson, there are many lessons in this, I thought. Some somewhat funny. You can't run so fast while you're barking. A lot of people don't know that. I thought that was one of the good lessons, uh, which speaks to many people uh, who do tend to bark a lot and can't run very fast while they're doing it. And then every reasonable creature knows that the worst thing any creature can do all day is think of themselves. If there are troubles in your mind, you should think first of the troubles of others. It is the essence of liberation. Mm. That is, freedom begins the moment we forget ourselves. At times, did you find yourself knowingly writing lessons into the book? Thank you for noticing that. I forgot about that line, but it means a lot to me. And yeah, I think that we, ideally, you arrive at those aphorisms or maxims or whatever you want to call it in an organic way, as opposed to sort of dropping them clumsily into, uh, into a narrative. And I think, you know, you're always trying to make it seem not too obvious, not too burdensome or pedantic. (laughs) That's so meta. I would rather the reader sort of put those things together. But because it's first person and because he's so open and because he is sort of having pretty pronounced revelations throughout about the universe and his place in it, it was uniquely appropriate, I think, for him to have a few of those moments 
where he could sort of state something baldly like that. Whereas I think in many cases, especially in sort of third person omniscient narrator, it's much harder to kind of make those statements. I think back in the day, the Dickenses of the world did it much more often. And I find great joy when the author is able to do that. But I think in in contemporary fiction, it's much rarer. Mm. I think we bristle at that, even though the great novels of the 19th century all had incredibly direct statements of this is what we've learned and this is how <laughs> we live and this is what you should not do. And, and I love that. And that's why when you run into a Vonnegut or some of the 20th century novelists that still were not afraid to do that, it's so refreshing. And I think that if books don't tell us how to live or give us some indication of what the author themselves has learned. One of the interesting parts of this is you decided to include in it pictures of Johannes in the various settings in the park married to classical paintings. And you had Sean Harris, the illustrator. Sean is joining us. Sean, I'm curious about the conversations that you had with Dave and what you said you wanted to do with the illustrations and what he may have said. Hello. Early on our first conversation, Dave basically described this book with the wooden cover and these sweeping classical illustrations, these landscapes, kind of to a T, which is sort of rare at the outset of a project. And I think we kind of meandered around how to achieve this and considered a number of other things before actually just coming back to Dave's, you know, first few sentences. I've collaborated with Dave on some picture books and a couple of his novel covers in the past. And my art style is very much not, you know, 16 to 1800s classical oil painting. I'm more of a collage <laughs> collage guy. So when we were talking about this, I, I was thinking, oh, maybe Dave's bringing me in as an art director or something here. But then it turned out that Dave, Dave was the art director. He had the vision from the jump. And we just sort of played with this until we figured out how <laughs> we could achieve these classical landscapes. You know, at, at first I suggested, well, maybe we should actually just be talking to an oil painter. I won't be offended if if we go a route where I don't get to work on this, but I had been looking at these high res images from the Rijksmuseum and a few other museums that had been recently putting up these high res images and I just admiring the brushstrokes of these masterpieces. And so I mentioned, you know, these, these copyrights are expired and these museums seem happy to have these multimedia collaborations with current projects. So we reached out and sure enough, that, that was the route we took. Is the idea of in some ways touching up a painting that a classic painting that already exists? I mean, is that a really cool assignment or is that like a really intimidating assignment? Like somebody's asking you to put an extra nose on the Mona Lisa. Like how did it feel approaching the project? Yeah, I was probably overly brash <laughs> thinking this will be fun and easy. I really did get in the weeds in terms of uh, with, with each with each painting kind of trying to capture the brushes that I would be using to insert these dogs. And, and I was, in fact, working digitally on top of these digitizations of these old paintings. So trying to familiarize myself with these old world materials, but then do it in this kind of new tech manner, but in a way that, you know, we weren't showing our hand. We wanted it to look like maybe you've seen these paintings before, but haven't 
just didn't notice the dog because contextually you weren't viewing them, you know, along with the narrative coming from the dog. Yeah. <laughs> well, I saw some of the illustrations before I actually started reading. And then right in the first couple of pages, Johan says, have you humans seen me? You've not seen me. It's not possible. You're mistaken. No one has seen me running because when I run, human eyes are blind to me. I run like the light. <laughs> have you seen the movement of light? Have you? Well, of course we haven't, but you had to illustrate it. There you go. <laughs> you had to, you had to paint him running. That's a great passage to pull. That like illustrates exactly what we wanted you to feel when you saw, when you saw Johannes in these illustrations. Yeah. Like you just missed him before. Well, it's a wonderful collaboration. It makes for a marvelous book. It is. As Sean was just saying, and we were talking about earlier that can, I think can be read at many levels. We finally decided, Sean, that an onion has many layers as does this book, but sometimes an onion is just an onion. <laughs> and so you can read it as an onion or you can read it as having many, many layers. But the illustrations, I think, are a wonderful augment to what is a wonderful book. We thank you both for being with us. Dave Eggers, Sean Harris, all the best. Yeah, we love this book. We love this book. Happy to be here. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid Fire for Dave Eggers. Favorite book to read to your kids? You know, my favorite book as a kid was Corduroy. I read it a thousand times. My kids did not love it as much as I did, but <laughs> they were stuck with it. That and I think <laughs> Blueberries for Sal are my two favorites. I have read Corduroy to Kate many, many times. Most influential book in your life? Uh, there isn't one. It would have to be every six months. There's a different one. But I do know that Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison was the book mm -hmm. that most inspired my first book, even though they bear no resemblance to each other. But when I was writing my memoir, that was the book that I went to again and again to sort of illuminate the personal as universal and sort of how much you could get onto a page. And so I still think it's, there's no better American novel. I wish it were assigned more than it is right now. I'm shocked at how little I see it out there in high schools, but I, I hope that we all rediscover it. There's no better book. Do you write every day? Uh, no. Is writing a muscle that needs exercise constantly? I think so. And I, I write as often as I can, but for me, I have to have the entire day free 
to get anything done. And so I need a solid eight hours without interruption. And if I can't get that, the day is gone. So you have to be very protective and very selfish with that time. And I think there are some of us that are like that. I'm very envious of the people that can write in the morning and then go and have a real job, you know, as a doctor or lawyer or anything else, and then come home and and do it again. But for me, I've got to cordon off all that time, go to the boat, (laughs) briefly take a nap (laughs) in the boat, because I always take a nap first. (laughs) And then then I get up and then I can usually eke out a couple useful hours in an eight-hour day. Did you get good grades in English? I did. I had an uninterrupted string of incredible English teachers. So I was just so, so, so lucky to have. And all of my teachers retired at the schools where they taught me. So uh, these were all public school teachers. They were treated well. They were treated with dignity. They were given reasonable salaries and given freedom to teach. Mm. So it was a lot different than it is for so many teachers now where they're just being uh, sort of, we're, we're making it so unpleasant and so difficult and so contentious to teach in addition to not paying them a dignified wage. You know, there's no wonder that we're facing a historic teacher shortage, but we've got to do better. Are those teachers proud of you? A lot of them have passed on, but I have a teacher who named Peter Ferry, who has now written a number of novels, very good books. And he's still one of the first people I show my manuscripts to, and he shows me his. And so he's phenomenal. And he was my uh, sophomore year, called it SpeechCon, where you give speeches. And a brilliant guy. Look up his books. They're so good. Did you have a favorite anthropomorphic book growing up? That's a good question. Corduroy was sort of that. Mm. I read all of Sendak's books because I loved monsters and he drew monsters better than anybody else. I loved Richard Scarry books. Mm. I um, Beatrix Potter books. I loved pictures were really important to me because I always wanted to be a children's book illustrator as a kid. So I was always first attracted to the pictures Mm. and very often did not read the books unless they were read to me. And I really didn't become a reader on my own until high school. Mm. I read anything that the teachers told me to read but on my own, it was my freshman year of high school that I first read an adult novel on my own. That's the case for a lot of very active kids. And I was like that. I didn't want to sit still. What was the book? It was Dune. Frank Herbert's Dune. It was Dune. Frank Herbert. Okay. I had never heard a word about it. I didn't know anything about it, but I just pulled it off the shelf because it looked cool. And it was a, a period of the day where all we could do is read. We were stuck in a room full of books and cushions. And we had to sit on the floor and read for an hour. And that was the first time I had that kind of quiet Mm. and kind of calm that I needed to concentrate and choose a book of my own and just become transported. I remember finishing it and walking out of the hallway at my high school, thinking I had just returned Mm -hmm. from another lifetime. Mm -hmm. I had I was, I was fully and completely, I had lived a second life. And that was the first time I'd really, you know, experienced that sort of profound double life 
that you can have as a reader. And so I was hooked from then on. But it took a long time. It is fortunate that you picked that out as a first book because he does create a world that sucks you in, draws you in, and you feel a part of that world. Well, you know, yeah, science fiction and fantasy authors don't always get enough credit for world building. And it is not easy. And there's no wonder that young people so often take to fantasy and sci-fi because it is a way to live multiple lives. And why wouldn't we allow that and honor those genres, if we're going to call them genres, but honor those reading experiences as opposed to thinking of them as, I don't know, sometimes lesser than so-called literary uh, genres. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? More of the same, I guess. And then very different. How's that? More of the same <laughs> and everything different. Um, no, I feel very lucky to, you know, to be doing what I'm doing. And I never forget how lucky I am. But there's so much more to see. So that's always the, the balance, right? You want to see everything in the world, but at the same time to sit and write about it, you have to be sedentary and solitary. And so that's the tension that I've lived with for 30 years, but I do feel very grateful. So more of the same and everything else. How's that? That's seven, seven words, maybe. That's just fine. Anyway, we, there's so much more we didn't get a chance to talk. I would love to have talked to you about your travels in Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. But it's always a treat to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Our conversation with Dave Eggers and Sean Harris. One of the things I really like about Dave is he really is one of those writers who, you know, once he creates the work, he really pushes it out and says, it belongs to you now, interpret it as you will, which may be one of the reasons it's so difficult to sort of elevator pitch and describe and pigeonhole, but it really is a terrific read, The Eyes and the Impossible. That's one of the things that I have found interesting about our conversations with authors now over the past year plus, which is that they write it, they finish it, they perfect it in their minds, they go through the editing process, the publishing process, and then they say, this novel is no longer mine, it's yours, it belongs to you, the reader, make of it what you will. And I think that is true. I hope many people will read this because it's a delight. It is just a delight and you can make of it what you will. And so a reminder of those who make this podcast possible and then a coda from Dave Eggers. If you've listened to the podcast in the past, you know that Dave is very much involved in projects that involve students and teachers. And he has some very apropos and important thoughts about teachers, which you'll hear in our coda. The Book Case with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. We have to pay teachers better. So there's two bills in Congress, one by Frederica Wilson, one by Bernie Sanders to set a federal minimum of $60,000 a year. And our nonprofit, the Teacher Salary Project, helped get Wilson's bill in there. And we were in D.C. a few months ago working on it. And it would give federal money for states to bring those teacher salaries up. It would, I think, create more incentive for young people to go into the profession and it might make it easier to stay in the profession amidst all the other pressures. But I think it's time, it's only logical, and I think it's long overdue. Mm-hmm.